Hello, this is Graphic Policy Radio. This is Comics Podcast. This is your host, Elon Eleven, the podcast where politics and comics meet. And this is certainly a podcast for fans of the X-Men. Mutants are united on Krakoa, building a new just society, question mark, for us. And it's been an exciting time to be an X-Men fan. Earlier in the modern age, the Krakoan age, as we call it, of X-Men, I've had the pleasure of talking about the series with a range of amazing guests. Like I've had Jamel Bowie, Spencer Ackerman, Nia Ching, Stephen Adewell, really great people. You should go listen to those episodes for sure. But it's been a while since we've talked about the current X-Men books on this podcast. And so I thought, let's just go check in, like, what's happening in the X-Men world right now? Oh, it's kind of a lot. We're, we're actually in the fall of the, the fall of X is happening. It's a, it's a big moment. And I thought that it might be time for folks to come back together and discuss where things are at in the X books, get some of our feelings, thoughts out. As the series continues to be incredibly riveting and really some of the most exciting and political X-Men books that have ever happened, we'll begin with a brief spoiler-free sort of check-in on, yes, we're reading these books and we like them. And then we will go into a completely spoiler conversation about what is happening now on Krakoa and beyond. And joining me again to talk about X-Men, we have Spencer Ackerman. He's a Pulitzer Prize and National Magazine Award-winning national security reporter and a new columnist for The Nation magazine. His book, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump, won an American Book Award, and it was rated a 2021 Book of the Year by the Washington Post, The Times, and PBS NewsHour. Along with Evan Narcis, he's the co-writer of the new DC Black Label miniseries Waller vs. Wildstorm with artist Jesus Meru and color artist Michelle Atea, and that comic is fucking amazing, and I just got to read issue three. My jaw was on the floor. My jaw is still on the floor as I speak to you right now. Welcome back to the show, Spencer. Hey, thank you. And so much of that very, very kind sentiment really is attributable to our amazing art team of Jesus Marino and Michael Atia. Yeah, like I, there are some amazing pulls from Wildstorm in here, but even if you don't know Wildstorm, it it doesn't matter. You should, folks, if you want to hear more about this series and how awesome it is, Spencer and I did talk about it a couple months back. Time is confusing. But yeah, no, I'm absolutely loving Wilder versus Wildstorm. It's everything I could want in a Wildstorm standalone kind of a series like it's just been biting politics and vicious in all the right ways and a lot of fun and just gets you in the guts every issue so thank you for that thank you so much issue three out on september 12th september 12th go to your stores and joining me is a first-time guest who I'm really a big fan of. I first became aware of their brilliance and critical analysis listening to the Cerebro podcast, wherein they were the guests to talk about Manifold and Gateway, two of the iconic Aboriginal X-Men characters. And I've been talking with them online about X-Men stuff ever since. I'm being joined by fan and physicist out of Australia, Kaitun Klein. <laughs> Hey, how you going? It's good to be here. I'm, I'm unlike Spencer, whose work I'm a huge fan of. I can't talk about most of what I do. <laughs> it's because you're a secret scientist. 
Uh, no, not really. Well, yes. realities, secret, right? Yeah, secret scientists, things are happening. It's okay. We scientists are always up to things that are good. It's fine. Actually, I would never. never I would yeah. never. I would never join Orcus. That's all. That's, that's what all you I need to know. To listeners. I, yeah. I think of you more as a Peter Corbeau type myself. Absolutely. And if, astronaut, if I'm going to be anywhere, I would be closer yes. to horticulture, um, <laughs> or before they aligned themselves with the beast. So before they aligned themselves with the beast. Okay. Before the beast, the, the beast mm-hmm. of Orcus, the beast of, of bigotry of fascism before mm-hmm. they were willing to make a deal with the devil. Got I'm it. probably on that side of radical. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I, I we are, we were laying on the X-Men metaphors thick here because we are dealing with such a rich X-Men text right now. I personally feel like I could have gone a little longer before there being a fall of X, but I certainly am enjoying reading this nonetheless. And just a little editorial note from editor me, Ilana here. The following episode is recorded on August 30th. I know that you're not getting this until September. I make and produce this podcast by myself and I am not paid to do so. So things can be a little bit slow, but uh, having just gone through and edited everything, I feel like there's only one point in here that is likely to be something that folks might feel a little different today than they would have at the time that they recorded this episode. I think we did a pretty darn good job of projecting things, but I do want to just caveat if anything we say in the upcoming episode is contradicted by something that you've read in this week's comics, it's because we do not have Rachel Summers' ability. No chrono skimming was occurring here. So we were we were limited to dimensional time. Thank you for bearing with me. And I believe your patience will be paid off in full. And like I said, I want to give folks a bit of a spoiler-free, like, yes, we are still reading the comics. We're still enjoying them. Before we go into voice full spoilers, does anybody want to give you sort of a top line of, like, why you're still enjoying reading the X-Men line and, like, what folks need to keep an eye out for? I would say, for me personally, while I'm very much a fan of thriving errors, eras, and I actually really like Krakoa, warts and all, political and sociopolitical stages, I may not necessarily like the direction I think it's going trajectory-wise, but the execution has been incredible. And it's some of the best writing for characters that I love that I think I've seen in 20 years easily. Even if you really love Krakoa and you're dreading whatever the fall may bring, it's an incredible read and you will miss out if you never participate. (laughs) Yeah. I'd add to that, Krakoa has been a revelation for the the X-Line, not just a rejuvenation, but a tremendous and tremendously fulfilling update and perspective on the central themes of the X-Men as a franchise and the mutant metaphor specifically. Fall of X finally feels like a challenge to the Krakoa era that meets the scale, that Indeed, takes... Yeah the inherent concepts of Krakoa so seriously maps it out onto our world well enough for us to understand that the reaction to a Krakoa by the enemies of Krakoa would be as horrific, 
destructive, heart-wrenching, anxiety-inducing, and as a narrative event, thrilling. I've spent what feels like a year dreading what Fall of X was going to be because you read the era and I'm finally one of those X-Men fans who has an era that they're just sort of always going to compare this stuff as I previously I've I've taken a lot that I've liked from a variety of places, but myself for the idea, inevitable as it may have been, inevitable as it may still be, that Krakow is going to end, I had a lot of dread for what Fall of X would be and what it would feel like, and no more. This is a very rough story. I think someone, I'm forgetting who, in the Cerebro orbit, compared it to being... Earth 616, Days of Future Past. But that really is, to me, what it feels like, and that is about as as praiseworthy of a status quo as I could imagine. And I'll say that, like, general, generally speaking, it also feels like when things are upsetting that are happening, the people who are doing them understand that and are doing them with that full thoughtfulness and respect in mind rather than it being like fridge type situations or Mm. belittling or like people know what they're doing and they're treating it with serious with the seriousness that it requires there are like i feel like maybe tiny edge cases but overwhelmingly this is true and that really does go a long way i think for keeping me excited and and reading it and ready to keep up with it rather than just step back and it is really exciting like there's there's twists and turns that have happened just now that feel like really excellent payoff for story that i've been told so far and it's presenting opportunities for really interesting stories that we wouldn't get otherwise um there i have like a basically like there's two i don't even know if bet noir is the right word that it kind of dances close to that I'll go into in the spoiler stuff that I'm like, <laughs> oh, but please don't do this because, but I'm, I'm reading a good chunk of the line right now and really enjoying it. And the reason we're doing this episode is because when I read the Hellfire Gala issue, I immediately reached out to these two wonderful people and said, I need to talk about this with you because I have so many thoughts. And the fact that we have so much to say about the series speaks to the fact that this is still a comic that has big ideas and is doing big things. I also don't think this is the end of Krakoa. I definitely think that it is the middle phase and that Krakoa can still be reborn. And I hope it will be. And from here on out, there are spoilers Unless there's anything else people want to say pre-spoil before I go to that. Yeah, I, I did want to add that for anyone who is hesitant to read this because they really like Krakoa, there have always, as Spencer said, there's always been some existential questions that Krakoa asked but never waited for an answer for. And one of them, I think, in terms of identity and and land and the sense of a nation is being answered resoundingly here in a in heartbreaking ways but it is worth reading it is it feels good it doesn't feel just like some edict from on high and they're putting the toys back in the toy box this does have an irrevocable effect on these characters that we love in a way that feels like it's going to last for a very long time it doesn't feel like it's all going to reset 
It doesn't feel like it's some alternative timeline that's going to disappear and only one person's going to remember it. This is something really important to these characters and it's it's written and presented in a way that admittedly is a little upsetting. But as you said, does have it feels like it has the due respect given to it. And so for anyone, you know, especially for Kinfella who are hesitant, it's worth reading. It's just it really is worth reading. Please do. And with that, I will say by one thing that I was like, oh, we were just about to, and this is the spoiler part, we were just about to begin to look at what democracy might look like on Krakoa. And then they, mm. which, and then they're like, but wait, we're about to have, a, nope, nope, now time for everything to go to hell. Like, God damn it. Which I, I actually sort of appreciate it as a tease for someone like me. I just really hope they do eventually go back and look at, in this reformation, what would it mean to actually do democracy on Krakoa? Because- Comics very rarely do democracy in stories. I have theories on why, but I, I, I honestly feel like, I mean, especially with Kieran Gillen is like sm- knows politics enough to do a good job of it. I would love to see it happen. So we've always seen politics on Krakoa be elite politics. Yes, we haven't seen it. We haven't politics. seen it been mass politics yet. Yeah. Yeah. And it felt like there was a moment, I mean, we saw it literally in like the last, in the second to last episode issue of Immortal. It was like, we were about to, like, they're going to be like, okay, motherfuckers, we're going to have an election. And like, like <laughs> Elon, I'm like, yes. I mean, a real election, not an election of X-Men. So I really do hope we get the election we were promised. And I certainly think the fall of Krakoa certainly gives us an opportunity to point to, yes, there needs to be one. So I fully believe that this can be set up to happen very soon. But it's definitely something that I've noticed in general that comics don't like to do that. They always like to tell a story about a king. They like to tell a story about a chosen one. I think it's really exciting and more interesting when we do stories that are neither of those things. Anyway, (laughs) so a lot of the folks are feeling like we knew Fall of of X was coming because of the structure and cyclical nature of comics and because the way things are solicited. But we've also seen so many of these pieces like, for example, the poisoning of the, medis- the medications and stuff like that coming together over not just this year, but the year before. And this, is, this has really been built up to through the series. One of the pieces that, and I mean, this is just, I'm just barging straight into like political messy stuff. One of the things that I really thought about, especially when I was reading the first issue of X-Men that came out after the gala, was how much it didn't occur to the mutants that their opponents would hate the mutants so much that they would kill humans to win, right? Like, I I know that Magneto knows this, you know what I mean? But like, this isn't like top of mind for how the 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 X Men and Krakoa leadership are have been acting in general, and like the, the the sabotaging of the medication to turn the humans into the hostages was just something that I think that it didn't occur to most of them that they could even do, and I it really what it struck me. There's a quote which is commonly, I believe, misattributed, but maybe correctly, but I think misattributed to Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir, who is plenty racist and genocidal on her own, but who said, potentially may have said, I'm caveating everything based on research, but peace will come when the Arabs, you know this, yes, peace will come when the Arabs love their children more than they hate us. 
is what she has articulated. And certainly I will say, regardless of what she may or may not have said, this was a statement that was told to me as a child growing up in like a Zionist dominated culture. And like, just in case any listener is doubting, that's a fucked up thing that people say. That's not true. But like, I think that what we see in the comic perhaps reflects that mindset where like, they're like, we can't imagine that the humans would hate us so much that they would kill their own children. But here we are. Anyway. Yeah, I think that this is, that's also in a way why it was so important that Magneto be gone. Yes. Because you have to be the survivor of a genocide to really understand how desperately bigots will strive to eliminate you even at their own expense. And I think that, that Magneto would have recognized it very early on. And I think that he would have done whatever it took to win the scenario, the situation. Because he knew that there was no, there's no negotiating with fascists. But I also think that there is a little bit of hubris in it in regards to Charles and that he just always thinks that he can negotiate with anyone. He always mm-hmm. thinks that he can, if he plays nice enough, the bigots will will accept him. It's just never going to happen. <laughs> just to jump in on that as the Magneto guy, I really liked the way that they took the character off the table in X-Men Red and Axe. But what didn't sit well with me is that I didn't understand what the overriding editorial need to get rid of Magneto was. I didn't, I, I, that didn't make sense to me as devastated as he was after the events of trial of Magneto only when the Hellfire Gala came out. Mm-hmm. Did yeah, I understand why it was editorially important that he not make it to that gala? Because if he's yeah. at that gala, nothing goes the way they need that <laughs> issue to go. Magneto simply would. So to, for those who haven't read this, I assume now that we're in spoilers, everyone has. Uh-huh. But Orcus through Dr. Stasis makes clear to Xavier that he has sufficiently backdoored a kill switch into the mutant medicines that he can use that as leverage against Xavier and, and say that unless mutant kind vacates the planet, then they will activate that kill switch and kill however many million human beings have taken that medicine. Charles feels checkmated in that scenario and Magneto simply would not make that arrangement for Magneto as Kahetun mentions Magneto will never be able not to understand that a diaspora and not really in the classic sense what we mean by a diaspora but in the sense that there is a forced relocation as part of an ethnic cleansing. Magneto will never not be able to understand the, the sheer vulnerability and existential fragility that that is. And so he couldn't get out of the Axe Judgment Day event because of this. And now I, I really see what a profound decision is. And Kaitun, given that you are we're now going by, I guess, some Cerebro designations, the Manifold person. It occurred to me as well that I didn't understand Manifold's arc in 
the Rogan Gambit miniseries. But now it just seems like similarly, Manifold would have been able to get them out of that scenario. And so narratively, he can't or even just in. losing him. To yeah, eliminate like, that possibility would have been unthinkable. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the, the Hellfire Gala couldn't have gone the way editorial needed it to go. They couldn't tell that particular story if they had either Magneto Manifold on the table. And, and this is really interesting to me, Storm. Yeah, yeah. Storm had to be on Mars. Er, Erica could, which, could not be. Which means, and, and I'm hoping that they like explore this, and I imagine they will, Storm has now missed her second consecutive mutant massacre. And mm. when she missed the first one, it was devastating to her to the point practically of madness. And Callisto had to bring her back from that. So having missed a second one with a very good reason that she's in the middle of a civil war. Yeah. But yeah. Nev nevertheless, Krakoa has fallen and mutant kind is endangered in a way not since the decimation. And I think there's also, uh, there's been a thread in her story that's been very interesting. I would like to see continued. There's a lot of times that people are saying, how can you do this, save us, help us, rule us, if you're not here? And I've, as re I've been reading this refrain for years now and just feeling like it was, it fell flat until the Hellfire Gala of realizing that this is going to be, this is going to be in her mind finding out. This is going to be something that, that reverberates through her very being the idea that she wasn't there to make mm -hmm. a difference. She wasn't there to help again. She's not where she needs to be. This is the very first scene in X-Men red. Mm. She's fighting a doppelganger of herself that keeps demanding of her. Where were you? Precisely. And I find that, that it's also very interesting in both S.W.O.R.D., X-Men Red, some of just X-Men, I believe, there's a lot of moments where she's kind of needing to be teleported around as if she's spreading herself thin. And I felt like that was another refrain that kept repeating where, especially reading like all of the challenges she was answering on Arako, I was constantly just like, how can any one person, <laughs> how can any one person just do this forever? This can't be yeah. sustainable. And I'm hoping that in going forward, this is going to be one of the questions answered. Where, what, is, what are her limits as a person, not as a mutant, not power-wise, but like where does she hit her wall? In the way that Charles seems to be hitting his wall of emotional trauma and duress and feeling like a failure. And it feels like Magneto kind of hit his wall of loss and, and suffering. Where's her wall? That's all I had to say. Well, I think that that's like a, a character challenge for her that has been spoken of more than it's been shown. And so I'm glad that they're actually going to do something to be mm -hmm. there. You know what I mean? Rather than just like imply it. And I also say, of course, as the Jimmy Madrox person, I said, part. <laughs> <laughs> Some of his dupes have been blown up. That's all I can say. No, that that is the status. Although I don't know, the space stories in the Marvel Unlimiteds have been fun. But needless to say, he's he's a good body to have amongst the blown up. Yeah, I think <laughs> like that was like. How did you feel about the way the busting 
and breaking of the bodies of the new X-Men team was handled on the page by Nimrod, like dropping in and sort of the dark humor and sarcasm that Nimrod is using in that moment and basically turning this beautiful splash page into a splash of blood, but not gory. It's very, it's a very strange, like kind of. It's beautiful. It's very traumatizing though. It was, it was, I think it took me about four or five days to get through. I just kept turning the page and then closing. (laughs) I just couldn't, it took me a really long time to get through it in a way that I feel that the Genosian massacre didn't. Yes. And I think that's where Genosha always felt flat for me and never felt real in the way that Krakoa has. In a way that the the mutant the original mutant massacre in the, the Morlock tunnels felt very real and visceral and upsetting. They really captured it. It's beautiful. It's a love letter to the resilience of mutants, but it also feels incredibly dire and uncomfortably realistic. The way that Nimrod and Orcus, by extension, choose to take this moment of triumph and, and joy when everyone's paying attention to these newly elected X-Men and just eliminating them <laughs> in the worst possible way. It was very fashy. That's all I can say from uh, <laughs> from experience. It felt very real. So let's, what, one of the healing balms, as it were, that came in at the very end of that issue was seeing... Kate Pride get to fall through the doors that have been previously blocked to her and land on the feet of some Orcus fascists in AIM hats and know that in moments, like, oh, she's going to fucking tear them a new asshole. Like, that was for certain. And then we got to see that in the first issue of X-Men that came out right afterwards. I think this was a particularly effective issue of X-Men, not just because we get to see like, yes, Kitty, who is Jewish and subtextually, vaguely textually queer, kicking the ass of some Nazis, but also because she gets to sort of have a conversation that I have been really hungry to see the series represent all this time. If folks want to go back and listen to the episode of Graphic Policy Radio called about Marauders called Marauders, colon, be queer, do crime. I I spoke there about how effective a metaphor it is for biphobia that Kate can't use the doors to to Krakoa. Like, of course she should be able to get there. Everyone else can be there. I mean, somehow it just isn't working, even though she's trying. And we open this issue of X-Men with her on a park bench talking to her iPad I think probably conservative rabbi, but we shall see. And conservative is with a, is, does not mean conservative as in Republican. Conservative is a specific subgroup of Jewish people that is, most of whom are Democrats actually, but I mean, who is a woman, they're speaking on a park bench and Kate is going to her for some advice. This is prior to the gala fiasco. This is actually a flashback to her much earlier in the Krakoan age. And Kitty is explaining, is expressing how sad and left out she feels that everyone can use the doors except for her. And she says, well, what if, I, what if it means I'm not a mutant? And her rabbi is like, well, what if you're not? Would that be so bad? And which is, of course, exactly what like the straight person would say in response. <laughs> and then Kate says, but I am a mutant. And then because her rabbi is like 
largely doing a good job says, good, I'm glad that's settled. And like that moment of being like, but I know that I am, even though it's just confusing to you is like, so it's extremely bisexual. It is extremely non-binary. I'm not saying that Kate is non-binary, although Kate is bi, but it is very non-binary. I'm just saying like, I know that you say that I'm not, but I just am. I can't explain this to you. I just am. Was like so perfectly nailed here. And it was so cool to have, I mean, anytime we have rabbis who are not like old men with huge beards in comics, it's a triumph of representation because most rabbis are not that. But it, it, it was just, it was so cool to have that conversation happen and then watch Kitty just kill some neo-Nazis after having a heart-to-heart, a flashback to a heart-to-heart with her and her rabbi. It's cathartic. It is. There, there, there's a little bit of, there's a couple of things that the rabbi said that doesn't really align with any Jewish theology that I'm familiar with in terms of saying like, I guess this is where God needs you to be. It's just like, that's a very, that's like a Goyesha thing. I've never heard like a Jewish person articulate that, but, <laughs> but to the heart of the matter, I, I appreciated seeing her, her rabbi there. If you know a rabbi who would like to talk to me about this issue, <laughs> I'd love to talk to them. I just but, realized um, I've been on mute as I've been trying to jump in on this. I just want to say, yes, there. I, I had that that same kind of hiccup, but Jerry Duggan resurrected Kate Pride on the 18th attempt, and for that, I am very grateful <laughs> for the way Jerry has portrayed Kate Pride, Kate's relationship to her Jewish identity, and how that relates to her mutant identity. I'm very grateful for that. And as well on the representation of a woman rabbi, I agree, probably. Well, here's the thing. I think if this is Kate's rabbi in New York, that's probably a reform rabbi. But I think Kate's rabbi in Chicagoland is certainly, I think the the Pride family went to a conservative synagogue in Chicago. They're in New York for this this exchange, but, Um, you know. Should we? A large percentage of conservative rabbis are women, though. So I'm just like, I my 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 one thing here. I am honored that one of the the dearest people in my life is my late mother's best friend, Rabbi Leslie Bergson, who was one of the very first women ordained rabbis in Reform Judaism. Which means she is one of the first women. She is the, one of the first women mm-hmm. rabbis in the history of the Jewish people which is 5,800 years old, allegedly. (laughs) Yeah. Badass. I love it. I will say also, just for a moment, to bring it back to the manifold of it Mm -hmm. all, because I'm always willing to bring it back to the manifold of it all. I noted that the park bench scene, while obviously indicative of different faith and beliefs, was very reminiscent of the times that Eden goes back to home, and has discussions about, are you Krakoan or are mm. you? Well, I'm both. Okay, then you need to like you need to hold them responsible. Like you need to hold them accountable to the laws and the beliefs. I found it very interesting that both he and Kate have gotten those moments, and to an extent, Storm has also gotten kind of that moment with Doom victim on doom where they're kind of called to account for like well what are you who are you where are your allegiances do you still believe the same thing are you still holding true to your doctrines and if so you need to show us and i'm 
really hoping that the fall of X, especially because of the rogue and gambit of it all, wasn't necessarily my favorite run. Not because it was bad for Aiden, just specifically because I, there were some depiction issues I had. Mm. I, I feel I'm probably a bit touchy about this, but I'm always very uncomfortable when a nation that thrives itself on creating indigeneity is comfortable exploiting an indigenous person. And I know that that's just the Irene of it all. <laughs> and that's probably my beef with her, right? That's my issue. That's why I can never quite love Raven and Irene the way that everyone else does. But it just feels very telling to me that the only way she could see Krakoa surviving is through exploiting and subjugating this indigenous man as a resource without asking, without explaining the situation, without in any way communicating to, to Aiden, like, hey, we need you to not be here. <laughs> we need you to be safe. Never bothers to. And I think that that's a lot of why I'm glad that Magneto wasn't there for the gala, because mm. I am hoping this will be a moment where Charles gets to reflect on his hubris, but also his willingness to exploit mutants. Mm-hmm. In largely the same way that Orcus is comfortable exploiting other humans. Not yeah. with the same callousness, but I, for one, was very uncomfortable with how cool he was just sending mutants to die up at that original Orcus station. And I felt like a lot of a lot of the deaths we've seen since the dawn of the Krakoa era have felt very flippant in a way that I think upset Kurt also. Mm-hmm. Everyone is just kind of cool with dying. I like the fact that Krako- the fall of X is asking these questions of not only Kate, but Eden and Storm and Charles and all of these characters who kind of adapted to the new status quo without addressing the dissonance between like who they want to be and their values and the things that they're comfortable doing versus what they have to do to have Krakoa survive or what they feel they have to do for Krakow to survive as a nation, the secret keeping, the exploitation, the going against your own values just this once because it's necessary, much in the same way that Charles put Creed in the pit. I just like that we're seeing these threads come together that have been around for years now. Some of them. I've been asking the question of like, what is Krakoa in relation to Earth since Sword One? Is it an entity that stands by itself? Is it going to be a nation that stands with other nations? Because you can't really be part of a planet if you're not going to participate, at the very least on some even level, with the other peoples of that. And I, I understand mutant superiority and the idea of mutants thriving on their own in a place for themselves because it's the only way they've been able to survive. But it, clearly it didn't work. <laughs> so I'm hoping the question is asked. Mm-hmm. Did they do the right thing? And not, did it, Charles do the right thing by lying to protect Mora? Did I want him to ask the question, did we do the right thing in how we made Krakoa? And just leave it there. That's what I want. That's all I'm hoping for. Well, one of the things, just to jump in on that, one of the things that I, I gravitated toward in the Hellfire Gala and everything that's come afterward, which is to say... X-Force 46 is the irrelevance of X-Force to the <laughs> destruction of Krakoa. And given the stuff that I write about, 
that's kind of just an irresistible thread to pull on, mm-hmm. then the state security apparatus, which grants itself exceptional power, mm-hmm. privileged status within a society to act in extra legal ways as a matter of institutionalized routine, all on the promise it is necessary to keep the system operative, to keep the thing going. And that was sure disproven, wasn't it? That throughout, and and this is clearly an intentional choice and I think a very rich one that Benjamin Percy and and his colleagues are doing on the X-Force book. As as the exploits of X-Force have gone on, they've spiraled further and further away from anything having to do with protecting Krakoa from Orcus, which turns out to have been, as we knew from Hotspox, the actual existential threat on, on, on offer here. The one that exists that was created precisely as an antipode threat Mm -hmm. to Krakoa. And X-Force didn't stop that. X-Force was busy with its own thing. And there, I think, is uh, a powerful lesson in how the entrenched interests of a security apparatus become self-perpetuating rather Mm -hmm. than fulfilling to the original purpose of that arrangement to the point that makes that perp that so-called original and foundational purpose more of a founding myth than mm. a material reality. It has. And uh, and Spencer's right. I feel that X-Force, like many special security apparatuses for countries, is spending it's spent almost all of its time from its conception in cleaning up its own messes. Its existence now is completely engaged in justifying its own existence, <laughs> in my mind. It's got to clean up its own messes. It's got to justify the things that it's done. It needs to take care of the threats that it has created. And in all of that, it has not once addressed Orcus. Not even close. It hasn't even touched it. What was it focused on mostly? Was it like there was all the terrible Terra Verde stuff? Yeah. This became a genocidal organization. And when we look at X-Force post Hellfire Gala, on one level, it's easy to blame Beast for this, but I'm just saying a tremendous amount of of shared complicity exists Mm. not in and beyond the Quiet Council. Well, I mean, Jean wasn't angry at him about Terra Vierde. She was angry that he lied to her about it. And yeah. I felt that that was very telling. Jean, I, I said this on the, the, the Beast episode of Cerebro. Jean doesn't come to, to arrest Hank. Jean doesn't come, which is an interesting contrast when now she's telling Firestar, if you need to, throw Hank under throw the bus. Throw under the bus, yeah. yeah. But Jean didn't demand the abolition of X-Force. She told Hank to cut out the genocide. Mm. And she and she didn't even she didn't even really condemn him for for what he had done. She seemed more upset that he was concealing information from the team. Yes, and that felt so telling of not only how warped the moral core can become when you consider the people inside the machine your own, 
but also she just left. She didn't go to the quiet council and demand that there be some reparation for these millions of people killed. She literally just washed her hand of it. Yeah, she said, "I'm, I, I'm, said, not, I'm not part of this anymore. I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm done here. I'm, I, th- I forget if that's when she quits the quiet council, but no, but yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she quit X Force though. She, she quits. She, she quits X Force, but she's gonna stay on the governing council. That and she never know. brings it up to the Quiet Council, and 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 I think that that's pretty telling of very largely, as I said, with Charles, his willingness to set aside his moral compass just this once. The idea that Beast is okay as long as he's their Beast, but the moment that Hank becomes a liability, suddenly the things that he's done are atrocities, and I want to see whether the fall of X is a permanent erasure, not erasure, but a permanent sunsetting of Krakoa's estate or whether Krakoa is reborn in a better, hopefully form. I want them to grapple with the skeletons buried beneath the foundation of their nation. Magneto is very proud in the issue where they go to the world economic forum, right? Where he says, we, we didn't bury any, any indigenous peoples or subjugate anyone to create our, create our nation. And then a few issues later, <laughs> here we are destroying an entire nation, not to secure Krakoa's safety or survival or anything, but just to maintain control. It was an economic decision. Anything, anything for profit, not profit. I don't think it was necessarily economic profit in that sense, but more just like it's easier if we're in control. So let me just do this thing, whether it was financial or just it was more convenient for Hank. The decision that he made was just because it was he felt pragmatically that it was easier. I just wanted to say and indulge me on this or if you don't, if you don't, we keep wondering about will there be Krakoa after this? It was hard not to read this and consider the fall of X to be the X-Men entering a very Jewish mode of their history and a a Jewish, a recognizable mode of Jewish history in the way that now through a devastating collective act of ethnic cleansing, a catastrophe has occurred within the sovereign homeland of the mutant people and now a dispersal forcibly at the point of a gun and so on has occurred throughout the world. The X-Men are now in a, and mutant kind in general are in a diaspora phase. And Mm -hmm. now is a time to really emphasize. I think I forget where this was. I feel like these words were, were, were referenced somewhere in fall of X, but I can't, I can't remember, but Krakoa isn't an island. Krakoa is a people. And, mm-hmm. and oh. that's exceptionally Jewish, right? Well, like, actually, that, that is Thor Ragnarok 3, where we have emphasized Platt a great deal, which is why it's the best. It's true. But this got really literalized in yeah. Immortal X-Men 14, where the 250,000 population of Krakoa are now in a desert being led by a guy called Exodus. It's amazing. Assisted by a person called Hope with Exodus explicitly narrating that he's going to march them to the promised land. He has no idea where it is. 
but he has faith that they will get there. And I'm so excited for this for him. He's been waiting for this his entire life. He was born for this moment. I mean, he starts out trying to conquer Jerusalem. And now he's before that. But but to get also perhaps to Alana, you can correct me on our on our people's history. But the two temples fall, Babylonian captivity, obviously Roman domination toward the end of the, the kingdom of, of Judea, but also another 2,000 years after the fall of the second temple pass with, with the Jewish people in exile. And mm-hmm. while I don't really want to touch on where Israel fits in, in all this, there's cerebral episodes that, that do that. The, the point I'm really getting at at Krakow, if we have moved into this kind of Jewish phase of history for mutant kind at the moment, or by which I mean being less tongue in cheek, that the Jewish resonances within the prism of the mutant metaphor now seem to be kind of shining pretty brightly, is that Krakoa cannot exist for an extremely long period of time the power of the community and the legacy of Krakoa can sustain people in exile to the point where even if they never get to see it again, even if generations, multiple generations pass without there being a Krakoa, Krakoa will never not exist. Krakoa will never not be an aspiration and an option for the for for mutant kind as it is metaphorically for the rest of us who experience the vulnerabilities of diaspora and i think that's something that's powerful and resonant and sustaining through the very dark night that is fall of x and that was something that i was thinking of after reading the scene with kate and her rabbi Mm-hmm. Mm. And uh, to add on to that as well, not to detract from the Jewish allegory as well, because it is very strong. They've done a very good job of capturing the ethnic cleansing globally and nationwide that occurs for the people who weren't a part of Krakoa. Yeah. Mm. From experience, the camps are pretty apt. The gene facilities the being identified as something that before you'd never even considered, right? People who weren't aware that they had an X gene because it never demonstrated any capability they noticed suddenly being targeted. They've done a very good job of capturing that overwhelming feeling that no mutant can escape this genocide. This isn't about the good ones. They're coming for everyone. And I'm very glad... They've done that because it feels not only personally very real, it also shows how quickly fascism, when it's given the benefit of the doubt, is allowed to spread into a systemic setup, even in a supposed democracy. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, I'm glad we have those scenes in the White House, for example. Yeah. Appreciated. But you're making me also think one of the things I'm obsessed with is everything that's happened with this new character called Subwoofer, who's just a regular guy, he's just a regular (laughs) mutant, just trying to like live his life and is caught between this genocidal system and 
there's a couple of, um, of beats from the gala issue that are just perfect where like you have Arcus is like for- forcibly taking him to Mars and saying, I hear mm. there's a war on your new home planet. And Wolf is like, I'm from Chicago. And he says to Kate, when he, when he runs into Kate later, he's like, they said I have family here, but that's not even true. And just like, as someone who's literally heard the mayor of New York city yep. and the president of mm. the U S both claim that I'm Israeli where I have never been and do not live because of my, religion like this is all because my ethnic group it's like if that note is just perfectly captured it was like no you can't just tell me this is where i'm from i'm from fucking chicago asshole but they don't they refuse to acknowledge he was being from that place because they're fascist Hmm. you could only be the other to them yeah and when when was was the debate over the name went on and the kenlands were kind of given back there were a lot of people who were told to go back to their kinlands they're really capturing the feeling of that like pervasive you don't belong bigotry where oh if your identity is so great then you guys should go back where you're from they've i'm they've done an incredible job i haven't i haven't had from the hellfire gala on i haven't had any actual complaints i've just felt personally uncomfortable a few times <laughs> have you read alpha flight i, I have, have read part of it i have not finished it but okay. i have no problem with spoilers so feel free so ahead, yeah. this was so i'm an alpha flight person and i really appreciate <laughs> that not only as fall of x proceeds and all of these amazing stories come out to highlight different aspects of the implications of the fall of X, that there's also an alpha flight book being published. The, the one moment. So like the reveal to spoil, sorry to spoil this for you. Kind of even though you said, no, um, the journey is important to me, okay. not the destination. So like a fascist entity has asserted itself geopolitically in an unambiguous side forcing way. And wouldn't in the 616, Canada is just going to embrace that. And so oh, the, they love the residential. They schools. love it. They love this stuff. <laughs> and this Alpha Flight book really leans into that in a very satisfying way. And mm. the, the reveal is what it starts out and the way the book has been kind of characterized throughout is that Alpha Flight, which has always had like, pretty heavy mutant representation that the human members of alpha flight go along with this and <laughs> the mutant members of alpha flight like north star aurora nemesis they they fight and the reveal it turns out to make it really satisfying for your longtime alpha flight fans like myself who full disclosure i completely bought that all of those characters would go along with oh i was with orcas yeah, but they've the reveal at the end is that the, the humans have been double agents all along and Alpha Flight is in fact united against Orcas. However, Michael Two Young Men, Shaman, the indigenous member of the original John Byrne Alpha yeah. Flight team, has as the last line of the book, we need to move every mutant off Earth as soon as possible. And I was just like, <clears throat> like to, to make an indigenous character kind of give the line that now persecuted minority must be forcibly relocated gave me some pause about that i yeah i 
I find it okay. So this is going to sound very mean to him as a character. I'm an old school Alpha Flight fan. All right. I've I've read since since issue one. I'll never stop. It's a real problem. We're the same person. Oh my god, this is fantastic. <laughs> well, for the longest time, it was the only place you found indigenous characters who had any mm-hmm. power. And then Gateway was really my like my bridge into X Men because I felt like he was respected in a way that we just don't get. But I do feel that of all the indigenous characters that exist in Marvel at the moment, he's the most likely to say something like this. Elizabeth doesn't, right? Yeah, because he's he's kind of he's he has himself displayed uses of his ancestral powers and beliefs that were power first tradition and like care and stewardship after, right? And results matter. Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't learn. He he learned for a little bit and then he went right back to what he was doing before. I do feel that he has less of a respect for not the tradition. He does. Cause I mean, he obviously he has to have respect. He uses those powers repeatedly, but I do feel that he is more comfortable shucking off the responsibility and the restrictions if he feels like he's getting results. So the idea of him saying, we'll just leave, <laughs> we'll get them to leave. Yeah. And then, the assumption is that he's going to be able to bring them back. There's like a hubris there that felt right, but it did make me cringe. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I, I haven't been spoiled properly. I haven't read the entire thing. I think I'm 10 pages from the end. Cause I was trying to catch up for tonight, but it, I, a friend of mine had mentioned it, had like sent a screenshot and it was just like, yikes. And I said, listen, <laughs> if anyone was, if anyone was going to say it, it would be that's, that's character. <laughs> I really loved Alpha Flight 1. I thought the the move with Feedback's wife on him to Orcus out of fear of self-preservation mirrored what we saw in Dark X-Men when Buddy's dad informs on Carmen. Mm-hmm. For the same thing that, like, we've really got at this point, even though they have been explicit about calling Orcus, Captain America calls Orcus a fascist organization, right? They're past the point of of having us kind of draw our own conclusions uh, mm-hmm. about, about what Orcus is. But that those were scenes where you can portray the the horrors of fascism as and appropriately so, as they have with the death camps, the relocation centers, the outright assaults on on Krakoa. But it's important to also show in those moments of turning people to inform on their loved ones and their neighbors, that is how the regime ultimately sustains itself. And it's important to show that. The fear of exposure will always drive them to expose others. It's a it's it's a self it's a self repeating cycle. I mean, as disclosure, someone who did go to a Australian version of a residential school, that is a key way of keeping pupils in in line. Is you get merits or demerits based on reporting others and surveilling each other to the point where no one forms any relationships or connections because you just don't trust anyone. 
And I do feel that they've done a really good, especially with Alpha Flight, a, an incredible job of depicting that paranoia where every time a character is kind of off on their own and the, and the, and the art and the, the framing is focused on that character, you're anxious about what they're going to do. <laughs> like what's going to be revealed about their, their, what are you going to learn about this character in this private moment? And I think that that's a slept on thing in the fall of X is there's been a lot of really good solo moments that are almost claustrophobic in how they amplify that sense of paranoia and, and nothing is safe and nothing is sacred and you can't trust anyone. Even, even the characters that you like, you're a little nervous when the narrative focuses on them too much. I've been sweating for Domino. Oh, man. <laughs> Huge Domino fan. It's not a good era for me. <laughs> I want to know where Doug is. Yeah, the moment where Doug gets eaten up by Krakoa for his own protection, which is so funny because we're all just like, oh, we must protect Doug. And Krakoa's like, no, seriously, we must protect Doug. I know <laughs> that Doug's made some controversial and hard to explain choices. I am obsessed with the question of what's him and what is Warlock and how do those two things interrelate. Yeah, let's let's talk about Doug Ramsey. Well, Warlock, Warlock is dead now, right? Or as far as we know. Mm, as far as we can tell, yeah. Yeah, and mm. like I, whatever the, the island has been kind of inoculated with technarchy-wise, it doesn't appear to be at this point a plot point. We saw the pit because, mm. because of the Struckers. And Doug isn't in the pit. Mm, right. So where's Doug? Oh, sinister. We don't see sinister either. We don't see sinister maybe, either. We don't see. I thought maybe there's more see, than one area of. That's thing. true. We don't see sinister yeah. either. But like, Krakoa has. I, we we kind of got this. I I think in Immortal X Men thirteen, but like, Krakoa has sort of decided like I'm taking a breather on you people, and the absence of Doug just seems really crucial there because, like, when. Xavier is back on Krakoa at the end of the gala. It says population one. Mm. So like Doug, not there. If he's mm. not in the pit and I'm assuming we're not counting the people in the pit toward that. Doug seems to be in, in some sort of liminal space that Krakoa has created. Shaw, who interestingly, just to contrast with, with one of the earlier points about some people didn't think they were, they were mutants that are learning that they are. The first thing we see Shaw do in 14 of immortal X-Men is like, take the cure and just say like, did he I was take the cure? Did he suppress the X gene? Sorry. He suppresses his X gene. Uh, I just felt like he would never give up power. <laughs> right. But he says it was never more than a sequence in my DNA to me. Like he, he's, yeah. he's, he's show him. It will be no surprise to anyone that like Sebastian Shaw, the man without solidarity, what he's doing is getting ready to like exploit the resources, the still formidable resources of Krakoa. And so I imagine that's going to be the avenue where like we'll find out more of what Krakoa and Doug are doing together. Because right now, enormous, enormous question and seemingly a significant one. Should we talk about the fact that they killed Jean Grey? Yes, I have thought. I, for a moment, 
I did want to talk. I just wanted to mention sure. honorable mention. Also, Lourdes Chantel. Yes, mm-hmm. went out like a soldier. Yeah, went out exactly the way that she, that the the illusion said she did, and also on top of that, went out at roughly, I presume, about the same time that Shaw gave up being a mutant, as far as he's concerned. Ooh, I felt it interesting that Shaw completely throws off. He doesn't even ask about Lardis. He doesn't oh, seem yeah. curious about what happened to her, but he seemed shattered when he found out that she faked her death to get away from him. Right. And that's, I find it interesting that all of the power players have shown their attitude towards mutant all in a very, very neat succession of, of issues. We've seen Alpha Flight. We've seen the Avengers. We've seen obviously Orcus. We've seen like Celine and Shaw. They've very quickly shown us how people react to the news and how people move forward. Shaw just doesn't seem bothered that his wife died. Ex-wife, late wife. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he considers her. He seems unbothered by it. Celine's never bothered by anything. So that's I mean, she died. She's bothered. She's getting a tan. She's doing great. God bless her. I hope she thrives. She's Celine's always been for herself. I'm not sure anyone would. I, I, who knows? She could be playing her own game. That's Celine. I wasn't surprised Shaw was. I was. I'm a little more surprised actually that Shaw is aligning with Orcus. Not really? because. And. When I said this to friends, they thought I was crazy. Not because I don't think he's a selfish capitalist. He is. He is an absolute piece of shit. Pardon my language. But I've always felt that Shaw has never engaged a fascist group or entity or government without feeling like he could one-up them. Like he had his own agenda going. And we haven't really seen it yet. And we haven't seen the seeds of it in a way that I didn't expect. I expected us to immediately know that Shaw thinks he's playing Orcus. And the fact that he right. doesn't seem to think he is puzzles me. Cause, I cause, see that. Yeah. Yeah. He still has the potential for an X gene and he surely must understand that once they've gotten rid of the others, they will come for him. He's always onto what's next, but he didn't articulate that. To- yeah. Normally, he just he, there's something that implies that he has another another ball being juggled, and we didn't see anything. And I I wanted to say it was very interesting to me that we go immediately, almost almost immediately, from Lardis dying to him throwing his as far as we can tell his coat in yeah. with Orcus. You know, and the, I wonder if they're going to tie that. The central flaw in Shaw's strategy, and to me, this makes me think of him as naive as Xavier was mm-hmm. is the, I like everything depends on Orcus respecting legally Shaw's claim to own Krakoa. <laughs> and do I have some news for him about <laughs> how Nazis respect the property claims of the people they seek to exterminate? Boy, do I have some news for him about the idea of civil forfeiture. Yeah, this was a bold, this is a bold strategy, Sebastian. I mean, he's going to get fucked. I'm glad that he's not too smart. I will appreciate you know I mean? it. 
Yeah, I want to see him get fucked. I just want, I want him to think he's clever and on top of it till the very last moment when mm-hmm. it gets ripped away from him, and all of the peace and the prosperity that Krakoa offered him flashes in his mind. His friend coming back, him getting to spend time with his son, like getting a second chance with his son. Oh yeah, the chances to write all of the wrongs that he had done and he turned on all of those because he couldn't let go of the fact that he was pissed at kate and emma like that's what it boils down to right he's angry about the fact that he got bested because he couldn't stop himself from killing kate he never takes responsibility for the fact that he made that decision he did not have to do that that was entirely unnecessary he couldn't help himself and he has faced the repercussions since, and he is blaming everyone but himself. And I can't wait to see him fail, but he gave up a chance to be a family with his son and to maybe make things right with his wife. And he did neither of those things. Yeah. What Real can I say, man? I, Speaking of villains, I am also really... I never thought that we would have so much kingpin in here. It felt like oh, a non sequitur, and I am I'm enjoying it so much. Okay, his gala look is perfect. By the way, like that's like mm. this are get up, fucking brilliant. I'm definitely excited about him being with Mary because Typhoid Mary because I love Typhoid Mary and I enjoy them together. When we look at like two forces in the human world that like have the potential to destroy the house of cards that Orcus has built figures that on, on one level could psychologic could devastate the narrative that Orcus Mm. has built and needs to maintain. And on the other hand, decimate the organizational infrastructure that it needs to maintain itself. They've done that in alienating first and trying to murder first Steve Rogers and then the fucking kingpin. Yeah. Like, how many times in the Marvel Universe does the kingpin walk into your organization, suborn it, and destroy it? I would simply not fuck with this man. He's a force of nature in the same way that Apocalypse is. Yeah, like... I don't understand the decision they, they made. They had Omega like, Sentinel completely unnecessarily go after Kingpin and he doesn't let stuff like that go. No. So uh, and they've gone after, after his wife. wife. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> also canonically something that Kingpin does not appreciate and <laughs> takes reprisal. Not a fan of it. Yeah. Not really, really doesn't enjoy it. It's like his least favorite thing. And the Captain like America. The silent human thing. Well, too. just like the Captain Very America much. of it all. Mm. If there's one figure your fascist organization is going to want to keep from opposing you and like speaking out against you. I would think it would be Steve Rogers and good thing narratively that we get Steve Rogers yes. in the X-Men book. Cause that's what uncanny Avengers is right. Like mm-hmm. ain't, ain't, ain't any Avengers except for Quicksilver. <laughs> Showing up to help the mutant, as far as we're concerned, (laughs) not a mutant, but like also kind of he's mutant. Yeah, like he was on an culturally mutant. Whatever the current state of the canon was, 
a founding member of the Brotherhood and also a member of an X-Factor team. So, yeah, he's in on this. Point being, other Avengers, nah. We see them at the gala, and then they run off panel to the free comic book day book, and, like, that's it. I love the point, though, that they make to to Sam and all them. Like, aren't you should be happy that Kingpin is here because you don't have to deal with them. And they're like, oh, yeah, I know you're right. Good point. Yeah, the first, like, 15 to 20 pages of, of the Hellfire Gower, an amazing piece of narrative misdirection, where, like, yeah. now that I've done one of these things, mm-hmm. it, it fascinates me the choice that they'll make given, you know, I, what is it, like, 72 pages, right? But nevertheless, like, page real estate is really precious. And mm-hmm. to be able to have that conversation is just a wonderful feat of deciding that it's worth spending some of that on like a characterization moment, as well as one that doubles as like a big flashing arrow saying like Kingpin important here, like placement (laughs) of Kingpin in the Avengers war. I'm sorry, in the X-Men world is, Mm -hmm. is going to be a bigger and bigger deal. And also potentially that like, if already perhaps the Avengers individually had reasons to justify to themselves not coming to the aid of the mutant population, as has been the case throughout the publication history of the Marvel (laughs) Universe. A real shocker. One justification that's out there is like, the criminal, the kingpin, the criminal mastermind, Wilson Fisk, given refuge on Krakoa, this criminal society. Per, and we wonder if, if that's going to be something that, that picks up on. But like Steve Rogers and the kingpin pose different, but no less similarly potent threats to the way Orcus seeks to be in a way that mutants can't themselves challenge. And I'm curious to see how that plays out. Yeah, they've done a really good job of positioning interesting characters. I mean, even with just Dark X-Men, right? With Madeline Pryor. They're positioning characters I didn't expect to play a pretty pivotal role as forces, as important. I'm really curious about Kingpin. I don't read Daredevil or spy, really Spider-Man. So I'm my knowledge of Kingpin is limited to like older Daredevil runs that I read. But I've been really fascinated by how they've made him not only a force, but he feels instinctively aligned in a way that I didn't expect. Like when he showed up, I was like, this is going to be, he's going to double cross him, right? Orcus is going to show up and we're going to find out that he was working with Orcus to like protect Mary. That was my assumption. But the fact that he openly, immediately was on the side of mutants has been interesting. Because he doesn't even know where Mary is right now. Yeah. Yeah. And he's still, he's not pulling back to his home base and, and making decisions based on his own intel. He's working, as far as we can tell, with Emma. I didn't expect that. I'm excited. Um, I, I really yeah. like the fact that I haven't been able to guess many of the directions this has gone. Speaking of New York-based storylines and characters, like one of the pieces that I'm still sort of thinking about a lot is everything with Ben Urich 
mm-hmm. from the Daily Bugle and the decision that was made to, to 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 leak the story of the resurrection protocols to him in the first place, and then now how he's sort of being portrayed in Uncanny Avengers. There's some really visually arresting and disconcerting panels of Ben with like his face half in shadow and his lip curled up in one of them, almost like he looks like if this was a DC comic, he looks like Calculator or the Riddler. Mm. Or you have, I mean, the art in general on this issue of Uncanny Avengers is, is interesting because there are some pages where I look at what Garon has done and I'm like, oh man, you're so fucking good. And then there's other panels where I'm like, this is very bad. <laughs> it's very strange. <laughs> it's like some of it's really working for me and some of it really isn't. And part of it's the color, but nevertheless. But like, I, I believe that Garon is doing this on purpose though. Like, and he's very like, face blocked off sunglasses these glasses are fully reflecting the buildings you can't see his eyes i've always been curious like what is up with ben or with ben because like him having been the guy who got the resurrection protocol story leaked to him and sort of viewing that as being a betrayal of the human of the mutants to to have done so rather than it being like he's a reporter and this is a story that a reporter should report he he almost seems like he's upset about it um mm. in a way that sort of surprised me so i'm still sort of thinking about like hit the role of the press in all of this i mean like for example the the, the letter that state dr stasis sends to the new york times is like so fucking a new york times letter oh my god <laughs> and he wouldn't the state the new york times would run that without having even to be paid the new york times loves to run full site full page propaganda by bigots that's one of its primary operating principles i would add um, to this that in mutant first strike judas traveler considers the false flag attack on milford to be a success because Gemma shin who i i think used to be some kind of carnegie symbiote host symbiote <laughs> host and now he's on like the the thing that they won't say explicitly is Fox News. They don't have to. Like just does the job of both sides in it and saying that like, okay, well, even if it was a false flag attack and mutants weren't to blame, aren't people are right to fear mutants? Isn't it legitimate? Shouldn't they not have to hide the fact that they're afraid of this? Many people, the line is many people feel this was yet another act of mutant aggression and they've got a right to that belief. And that I thought was like the, in addition to the, the Dr. Stasis, I thought it was an op-ed, but in addition to the Dr. Stasis statement to the, the essay to the Times. It's a paid op-ed. Paid, okay, so. Yeah. Okay, so. Paid op-ed that the Times would have run for free. And they've, yeah, and they've, and they've done a really good job too with all through since the beginning of the Krakoa era, that feeling when you read discussions about Krakoa and people's attitude to it. They've ca- really captured the whole feelings don't care about your facts <laughs> of it all, where it's yeah. not really about what mutants have done or haven't done. No, and it never it's about will. how you feel about them. Yeah, it's never going to be about what the facts are. It's always going to be about how you feel. I, I've, I've right. also loved the way they've, they've emphasized the propaganda in this. It's, They've done an incredible job. It's been, it's been wonderful. One of the things that made me gasp was they had one of the data pages that was like, an, I guess, like an Orcus poster or, or meme. That was the picture of Magneto. And it was just like, thank you, Orcus, for closing the gates to him. I was like, that's, <laughs> that's perfect. 
Because That's like really when you think of if you were who if you were someone open to or to like the Orcus message and one mm. day you had Professor X in your head explaining how the world had changed and this is the way it's going to be. And now there's a new global superpower and one of the people running it was Magneto. Like that would be exactly the message that resonates with you, right? Like that's simply to you. And this is where I think the mutant metaphor does kind of break down as many people have commented, like the legit physical threats that mutants necessarily pose here really undermines in many important ways the the direct allegories with people experiencing oppression but nevertheless the 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 deeper resonance of this of the, the point of it all is 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 what keeps us in and sustains us for it but nevertheless like the the propaganda has been really on point subtle biting as satire for for mm-hmm. our current media moments and political moments i did get the sense though that ben is is a bit of a narrative device here and that the way he's drawn didn't indicate to me even though that is a bit of an ambiguous grin in that one panel where he's chewing the pencil mm-hmm. i didn't get the sense that that ben had turned that he seemed to me still as when he says he doesn't he sees through the false flag of Captain Krakoa, whatever it is that's that, that Modoc and whatever it is. That- he gets the sense he's been used in a way. I feel like he's interested in finding out what really happened, but he also gets the sense that they think he's in their pocket. He's he's able to act like a rogue agent because no one's really looking at Ben Yurik. He feels he's able to explore a little more deeply into the story because Orcus already thinks he's solved. Right? Got it. He's a yes. solved equation. Got they it. fed him information. He put it out. And that's, I don't think that Orcus is necessarily, a little, how do I say it? Sophisticated than that, right? They feed the information they need. It's the same joke, right? That yeah. Stasis made. Oh, the PR department put out the statement right. early. Half hour early. Yeah, no, that was a wonderful. Yeah. Thing. It was so uh, I mean, look, he's yeah, been the on the of fascism. <laughs> Whatever his, what, Whatever his internal monologue and his conflicts about this, he put on the front page, mutants launch simultaneous attacks and hellfire gala in Washington, D.C., and that's just bullshit. That's not what happened. And he printed it anyway. Um, Oh, it's bullshit. Yeah. He thinks... He's starting to realize that it's bullshit. But nevertheless, that paper's front page says what it says. So he... But he doesn't write the headline, right? But Ben's not in charge of the paper. It says that he is. He's the owner of the Daily Bugle. Yeah, he's the owner owner, but he's still okay. Well, that's stupid. Screw screw you, Ben. I thought Ben was better than that. Like, I get Ben reporting on everything, but like, I don't get him being a patsy like this. This is not my Ben Urich. I think I I think Ben's problem too is that he also thinks he can undo what happened. Mm. You know, like if he gets to the bottom of it and he puts out some blockbuster release, some exclusive scoop on the truth behind Krakoa and the attacks in the Hellfire Gala. He's going to fix everything that happened, but those people are dead. Look, even breaking news in moments like this is hard. The early Mm. narratives are often very manipulative. 
And, and always wrong, almost always wrong. And they and almost always wrong. And they get on those pages anyway. And oh, yeah. it would not surprise me if from it would I don't want to say that. That did not strike me, regardless of any feelings about Ben Yurick and what he's represented as a real as a real reporter in in the Marvel universe. That struck me as quite true to life. Sidebar, side note, tangent just on Ben Yurick. Mm-hmm. Ben commits a lot of journalistic sins. Ben extremely lies about, like, Ben lied about Daredevil not being Matt Murdock because sure. he wanted to protect his, because he wanted to protect Matt and, and Daredevil. And he saw that, like, you can't, you can't fucking do that. But yeah, as a beacon of journalistic ben, ben integrity, not, he's not. Ben, can, yeah, <laughs> Ben's track record is very mixed. I think it's also sure. a really interesting show of hubris. Too, as as a, as a bystander, that he's not personally affected by any of this mm. in the way that others are. And I think that there's a certain level of, of arrogance and detachment that comes with that, where he's not seeing, he's not experiencing the lives that are being ruined by this, the lives that are being ended. Yeah. He's and up in the tower. Political, yeah, it's political maneuvering. What do you and think of the choice can, to go to him in the first place? I think it was smart. On Orcus's part, it, it's it's always a good idea to isolate the the target of your aggression from oh, no. any outlet towards voice, vocally at least. I'm sorry. What do you think of Cyclops's going to Ben Rurik about this? Did Ben wasn't it already leaked to Ben from Cyclops? Was it just Cyclops? I thought yeah, that there was. It, I think it was because he realized. Yeah, they realized that they knew. Okay. I'm remembering now. Ben um, fa- so what? Ha- so Ben found out because yeah. he's a good reporter. They wiped his mind. That became a problem. Cyclops yeah. decided, and this is a, this became a plot point. Cyclops unilaterally decided that he yeah. was going to tell Ben Urich about the resurrection protocols, and this becomes mm-hmm. an enormous issue because it's obviously it's it would instantly be one of the most important things that ever happened on the to the human race well, slash mutants, et cetera. And that was kind of an issue because it was not Cyclops's... That's a state secret. Yep. And Cyclops decided to do that on his own. Anyway, to speak to... I, the more you, you put that out there, the more now I look at that page as like, Ben's talking in his internal monologue about how he doesn't care that I'm the, that he's the owner of the Daily Bugle. He's a reporter at heart. He's not out there. Mm. He's he's up on that top floor in the Daily. He's looking down from the penthouse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like when he's looking at anything, he's like looking out at his desk and on his screen. And maybe we'll see him do some reporting later. But that's not his role right now. I think you kind of have to go with Ben just as a a kind of slash narrative matter that like not many more instantly recognizable characters in the Marvel universe, say journalist, like J Jonah Jameson is kind of off doing his other, his his own thing right now. But like it would look differently if it was, if it was Jonah and Jonah would print all of that. Like, sure. Absolutely. Without question. You you need it. You kind of need it to be Ben because like, despite his actual record and what it looks like to a real life journalist, 
Ben has always been heroically coded. We are supposed to under, even when he is violating journalistic ethics, we are supposed to root for him because he's like making sure that Matt Murdoch's life is not destroyed. And like what, yeah, what in the world, the right exactly. Yeah. Doing. Like what in the world of daredevil comics is journalistic ethics compared to that? Right. Like <laughs> the internal logic of the thing does not make the concern about Ben's professional ethics, the salient point there. So like, and we, he's also, yeah, he doesn't have any ulterior motive in the sense that many other journalists do who have relationships. Who am I thinking of? Is it Trish Tilby? Yes, certainly is. Yeah. And also a tie to beast. Yeah. You know, how many, there aren't that many other journalists in the Marvel universe who are recognizable, but also don't have explicit ties to mutants. I mean, so it's important to use him. Yeah. Marvel doesn't really have a Lois Lane. I say this is someone who's currently writing Lois Lane. Like Mm -hmm. the, the narrative uses of this are significant and become in my case, a great help to telling a comic book story that I wanted to tell to be able to touch on questions of media representation. So really like the choice of Ben, very curious to see how he'll shape up Uncanny Avengers. He wouldn't be the lead off of the second scene right after the cold open. If his role isn't going to be significant. And so much is happening in New York specifically. Sure. Um, It's, Sure, sure is. That that treehouse um, burnt down. That um, treehouse sure burnt. There, <laughs> sure there, went up in flames. There, Randall's Island is now mutant internment center slash torture chamber where Cyclops mm. has had his eyes sewn shut. Jesus Christ, yeah. Yeah, New yep. York. New York is really New York. I And this is going to draw from an entirely different medium and media platform, but I also found it very funny that in the expense, the torture black sites are in New York for the UN. Mm. And it was very funny to me that some of the same places were marked as internment camps. Oh, Just wow. as an outside media thing, I find it very funny that a lot of people look at New York and say, yeah, some atrocities could happen here. Yeah. To go back to the days of future past of it all, the South Bronx internment center. Right. Mm. Like this New York, New York's role in really terrifying, dire times for mutant kind, you know. To I include, mean, as someone yeah. who spent 18 hours in immigration internment because of a typo. Yeah, they they don't fuck around. Yeah. New York doesn't fuck around. It's just it turns out to just be a statue in the harbor, I'm afraid. Yeah. Unfortunately, the the sentiment isn't backing it. Yeah. As, but I am glad that we have Captain America siding with the mutants for this story. Absolutely. I, like, I do love it. Th- this- he stands for what America could be. Yep, that's the whole point. Let's talk about who we think is dressed up as Captain... No guesses. I refuse to guess. This is up to you, too. fine. Okay. I had, a, I had a really strong feeling about it, and then facts proved that it couldn't be. Based on... Based on characterization and physical poses struck by the character, I was like, oh, it's Bullseye. Again, I know I'm like a daredevil person, so that's why I'm like, it's obviously Bullseye. But Bullseye couldn't lay out Cyclops, right? He's in a power <laughs> suit. He's in a power suit. No, the reason I'm like, oh, I guess it's not Bullseye is because I believe somebody said something about how it's gonna someone who's going to really be a heartbreaker when folks find out who it was. 
And I'm like, oh, well, right. that would not break anybody's heart to find out that it's bullseye noted sociopath. So now I'm like, fuck, man, I don't know. Do you, do you have any thoughts, Spencer? Well, you mean Jerry Duggan told that to Connor Goldsmith, right? Yes. Sorry. Yes. Okay. Jerry Duggan said that. I think that phrase probably like dismantles my theory because like he hasn't really been teased here. But one time we were messing around on the discord, on the Cerebro discord, like with, with the speculation on this. And I was like, what if it's Wonder Man? Don't say that. That's right. You had a good explanation. Yeah. Like you, I can, I can see Wonder Man going along with this, like, crazy Mishigas. He's not always had the most stable relationship to his mental health, but also like a powerhouse character that would be like emotionally resonant to the Avengers. I think like mm. having so recently gone the evil doppelganger Captain America, they probably can't do that twice so soon after Secret Empire, right? Like, I, I don't mm-hmm. think this is John Walker or someone like that. I don't know. He's got relationship. I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not super confident in that. In that. In that take, I don't think that Jerry's comment would really cover a Wonder Man there. Yeah, at the very least, it's someone with animus. In my opinion, this is someone who enjoys inflicting as much psychological suffering as possible on mutants which is why bullseye but but it feels personal yeah but well but i will say wonder man is kind of like hank mccoy's like person he has people view yeah um, but i feel like they would need to have they would need to have a reestablished, like hey remember that beast and wonder man are a thing recently (laughs) and b the two characters who you would really expect to have roles in Fall of X established from the start that don't Beast and Wolverine. Mm-hmm. Like I, this is Wolverine's been. They gave him one page. They gave him. They gave him one page in the gala. Just be like, oh yeah, he would probably feel that Jean Grey is dead. Yes. Which we haven't even gotten around to talking about yet. Yes, we talk we about Jean Grey. Yeah. Do we have to talk about Jean Grey? We do. No, we do. We do. Oh. I'm a Madeline Pryor fan. Does it have to be so. such a strict with no. us or against us? No, she's no, a really important character in the X Men. No, here's the thing. I love Jean Grey as a bully. I love her to death as a very self righteous, a little bit meddling bully. And I love the fact that she's been kind of depicted that way. But every time I say it, people get mad at me. I mean, I just, she, she shoves Angela into sleeper agent role and is like, you're the only one they would, she is an omega level mutant. Angela's the only one she could convince people to believe might've been a mole. Speaking of that. It really is a good sell. It's a good sell. Speaking speaking of. I, that kind of makes me think that Captain Krakoa is actually a mutant. That, yeah, like the the heartbreak that Jerry might be referencing is that, given that they are planting a false mole in Firestar, that there was that they're working with them, yeah, yeah, and and that might be that might be who's in the suit, and no shortage of powerful mutants unaccounted for right now. Yeah, but I don't know. I, I have no. I have no idea. 
Um, I'm torn between hoping it's someone who has a deep rapport to the point where we're going to be like, of course, when it's revealed. And also really, really hoping it's a deep pull where every one of us is going to be like, oh my God, I didn't even consider this. I'm torn. Because on the one hand, they've had some pulls, like Amelia vote with sword, with these assassinations. I talk that talk. I was so <laughs> loved that to be a little X to be a little X rated. I was kind of turned on when they pulled vote out. I got excited and called my friend. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> She's back. But I also, if it's someone that perfectly fits that I haven't thought of, and I'm going to go, of course, that's fine too. That's the thing about Captain Krakoa right now. The way that they've written him and the really, unco- especially with the blob. Yeah, dude. Yeah, that heart- is so sad. Heartbra- heartbreaking. Heartbreaking turn. Heartbreaking. The way that he has such implicit trust is killing me. Yeah. I'm so emotionally distraught. And from an original member of the Brotherhood to have that trust in Cyclops. An original member of the Brotherhood who's been through so almost every incarnation and been misled. And it wasn't a fighter anymore. He's a bar- bartender. He just wanted to chill on Krakoa. Yeah. And he wants to protect his peace. And I'm so angry <laughs> that they've made me feel so strongly about this poor man being misled. <laughs> the fall of Krakow was the fall of his bar. I mean, oh. he needs to come back. The bar needs to come back. It, Spencer, it has to come back. Even if it's not on Krakoa, he needs to be allowed to have his mutant bar. It's not fair. Like the throt that's the thing. If Krakoa I don't think that Krakoa is gonna go away because Krakoa is an entity and Krakoa is hungry. Well, this is what I'm saying. So right? I, like Yeah, I don't think that Krakoa the island is gonna go away. But if Krakoa the nation persists, I want to see these little pockets of places that are reminiscent of the places they built on the island. But but kind of this the is Belladoon. what let me take another stab at this because this is what I was kind of trying to get across like editorially. The the fact that we've entered this diasporic moment looking at the lessons of Jewish history, mm. the Marvel Comics publishing line could go a really long time without there being a nation of Krakoa. But now that these last four or five years that we've had as readers of the Krakoa era that's still going on because they happened because everyone in mutant kind was affected by it and experienced it that unless they do. And I don't even really, unless they do like a full continuity, like hard reboot, like wiping, wiping minds and stuff like that. The point is that it will always forever be an option. Jewish history teaches us that, that it may be 700 years between temples. It may be 2,000 years before, and again, very problematic example, before the reclamation of sovereignty. But it's always there. Lest my right hand wither, right? It's Krakoa will always be there for us as readers and for the characters 
it will always have been real. We can, we may be in for a period where we go back to that mansion, right? But it will always be an option, whatever form mm. it takes, whether it's on a living island or whether it's something else. At one point in the Jerry Duggan, Phil Nutto cable series, there was that conspicuous mention of this being the first Krakoan age. Right, right. We, we may yeah. not have Krakoa for a very long time, but we will always have the option of Krakoa. We will always have the aspiration of Krakoa. We will always be searching for Krakoa. And that is why we have Nightcrawler in the diaspora in New York, because mm. that's extremely Jewish of him. And there's also the subwoofer in Ma on Erico with the very... Now that Orcus has kind of launched their larger umbrella plan, they've shown their hand to the mutants that were on the fence. Mm. The mutants who didn't necessarily identify with Krakoa, and it's very much the whole, right, ethnic rather than religious Jews. Yes. It right? doesn't matter how you identify. They yeah, it made that decision for you. Yeah, and then there was... And, Unfortunately, this is on both sides of my my heritage, but there is the non governance in Rwanda who are not involved with the the caste, who were not really interested. They were mostly tribal, and the culling happened to them regardless. No one cared, right? That they weren't right. identified with the cockroaches. But also on my other side, there's the whole thing of when the registration happened in the 90s and the argument over the benefits and the reparations and the, the reclamation thing happened with trying to take property from Aranda who owned property in desirable areas as an effort to relocate us. And I feel like subwoofer is a really interesting. I love that they focused on someone who was from Chicago. Yeah. Right. He had no interest in Krakoa. He was happy where he was. He was living a good life and or life as he was happy with it. And now it's it's very blink of an eye. Yeah, it's it's the what do they call it? Where it's it's the idea of like we can always go back. Even if we've not been a part of the original, we are by our ancestry a part of the original. So where Nebarma is the idea that even if you're not registered, you're not an active member of, of a kind, the Kenland always wants you back. Right? It desires for you to return because you are a part of it. And that's what I feel like they've done with Krakoa now with this kind of diasporic mm. allegory. Is that, yeah, even if Krakoa as a nation doesn't persist, I feel that Krakoa as an entity is not willing to let go of that togetherness. Whether it's generations away or it becomes just some small enclave or just some kind of neutral meeting place. The island having an, an entity and awareness and personality feels pertinent. They've made a conscious decision to make Krakoa not just a place, but a person. With the with the Doug thing, his un, even with X of Swords, right, which is a pullback far, he didn't want Doug to go. Right, Krakoa did not want Doug to go because Krakoa did not want to be alone. And whatever Orcus does, 
however Fall of X plays out, the idea that Krakoa has been given what Arako had, right? Like Arako had the mutants of Arako. It had Apocalypse's children. And those children that went through to fight the hordes of Amenth, they, in a very diasporic way, were always fighting for the dream of going back to Arako, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. The dream of peace, the dream of unification. And I feel, and I feel that this is very pertinent. I feel that the, 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 what was it called? Way of X with Kurt. Mm -hmm. That felt very purposeful to me as an indigenous person. The question of belief and belonging on a spiritual sense with an identity that you're just kind of stepping into that you really didn't have a choice in. The fact that the crucible is named the crucible feels very purposeful to me in the sense that as we're introduced to the crucible at the exact same time, chronologically we're being introduced to the stories of the war of Amenth annihilation and Arco and, and these people who fought for generations and generations and generations and generations just on the dream of returning to the motherland. No promise, no actual re- realistic chance of getting there, but they were willing to fight for generations. Yeah. It, that's, it feels very purposeful that we've seen the Iraqi already go through their crucible and come through on the other side with Mars and now we're seeing Krakoa go through its crucible mm. after a fashion. They were given the taste of Krakoa. And now they're all scattered to the wind and they need to fight to get it back. And the question is, is the memory and the longing and the, and the identity enough to hold you through to survive this drought to get to the promised land? Can you guys get back to being Krakoa again? And I think that the resurrection scenes, which I felt originally, I think this, that was my, whereas like Spencer was like, well, why does Fagnito need to stay dead? For me, it was the resurrection scenes where Storm was calling out their names and mm-hmm. saying, I know this woman, I know this man. I was always just like, I, this feels gratuitous. Like they do this all day. <laughs> they just sit here and welcome back the resurrected. Is this what they do? And then now that I've seen the loss of Kirko and the loss of that for them. I understand for them, that must be the most rapturous thing. That's probably what they're remembering. Your old friend is alive again. This person yeah. you love, you get to see them again. What the, the, the you, what, sense of eternity. What do you have on your calendar that's more that you would prefer to do? Like, I think at that point, you don't really return your library books on time. Yeah, it's when they more- come back to the from the mold, Right, the when they they resurrect the X Men in the beginning of Hawks Pucks for the first time, and there's just hundreds of mutants in a mob around them reaching out for them. I was like, this is now that I've seen the fall of X begin, I understand what why they had that image imagery, why they were doing it. It's it's the the rapturousness. It's the Everyone together welcoming back heroes and how much, how many of them were sitting, like how many of them were checking the resurrection queue 
for their friends, for their family. That, that like moment of seeing that name you've been checking for, for weeks and realizing, Oh my God, tomorrow I'm going to get to see this person. It's, I get to start off where we left. It's like nothing ever happened. That's, that's what they're looking for. And I, I, I get it now. All of these threads they put in, all of these scenes that I felt were so gratuitous and kind of like a waste of, of page space, I get it now. But I needed to see them lose it to understand why they would want it back. So speaking of someone who's dead, who's really important, who people would be lining up to welcome back. <laughs> oh, Magneto? Look, Listen, they, I yeah, would sell my look. soul. I would sell my soul to have Magneto back. He is my favorite. He's... All I will say, all I will say is, is I have a notes file explaining exactly how this could happen, should (laughs) such a story be desired. But Marvel, we're we're, We're talking to you. But um, speaking of significant deaths, Jean Grey. Yes, this is where this is where we should be going. We're back where we should. And look, I'm a big fan of Jean Grey, and I'm always fine with her dying because she's Phoenix. That's like no, it's fine. She'll be back. Does it's like built in. It was a really interestingly foreshadowed in terms of her conversations with Scott prior to it happening. I'm glad that the comics didn't forget that she is also in a relationship with Wolverine, which was important. Even though I'm confused about the comics forgetting that Emma is also in a relationship with Scott. Scott's resurrection. I I just, I'm curious to see if the Wolverine book just becomes like, him clawing through every member of Orcus possible because not whatever yeah. he comes I out of Krakoa like back. they they they, they murdered out. they murdered his girlfriend and they're torturing his boyfriend. Yeah, he is gonna kill them all. Yeah, you got his this is so this is what, like this is why you have a Logan in this story, right? Yeah, like yeah, this is what his purpose is. is. Like yeah. that's what he does. He wades through bodies and he stands over the pile. So. And like Gene was like, I need you to have a berserker rage right now. <laughs> so he's like <laughs> feeling fully un- unleashed on this. But yeah, I'm so glad that all the mutants aren't dead. I do think we had to have some real significant losses in order beyond just the loss of Krakoa itself, which is the greatest loss. It's, it makes sense to have a few characters die at a moment like this. If you're going to have a few characters die in a moment like this, I'd rather it be Gene than like Prodigy and like, characters of color who are just getting a start right now but who i believe we'll see soon and so that's why i'm not griping i think mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense to kill gene right now and then i think it's really interesting and she'll be back because she's fucking phoenix and i think it's interesting what's kicking off now with the no senti written series of oh. looking back on her life i think this book is exquisite just to to speak on on the gene of it all for a second first what a death this was a you know mm-hmm. of her three deaths i guess four if we count if we're counting jamaica bay and in i i counted as my favorite five stars I, five stars no 10 out of 10 people can talk people can talk all they want about the 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 first real death on um was it the moon when the sheriff pulled her up well, that's front. why I'm asking if we count her death yeah, in Jamaica yeah, Bay in yeah. issue 101. Absolutely not. Okay. Does not count as a death. That's why I no. laughed, by the way, because that's what I thought you were saying as a Madeline head. Your favorite one was the one where she just eats it trying to come back to Earth. No, that's no. funny, but... <laughs> that's what I thought you were doing. 
No, I see the thing for me, not a G, as not a gene fan, not a gene hater, but not a gene fan. I think it's fantastic. I've had a lot of fun with it. I like seeing her introspection on her own live in a way that feels honest and not like curated from her perspective. It's her taking a real stock of what's happened and what could happen, what didn't happen, why. I like that. It's one of the first times I think we've seen really explicit in the text the idea that Jean Grey's heroism actively makes things worse. Mm-hmm. Like oh. we've, there, there are many ways we can read and understand that. But now the first issue of a miniseries called Jean Grey has her just, just do that. And it, I think it's, it's a perfect turn for this character, a way of both allowing us to kind of reimagine Jean and recontextualize. Yeah. Like this to me, I loved the Louise Simonson X factor. I think it, I think it really is such a particularly like the first two years of, of Wheezy X factor. Some of the really, some of the best X comics to ever have existed. I I've, I've been on record about how I think X factor 18 the one, the Scott versus Gene fight is just simply one of the greatest comics the X-Men ever did. And I have nothing to add. I'm in complete agreement. This, so. this book was, to me, Wheezy writing how the teenage Jean Grey becomes the version of Jean Grey that Wheezy wrote in X-Factor. Mm-hmm. This extremely rich interplay of selfish and selfless. It came through so dramatic. So like also there's this one panel it right before she dies in the gala where she like hints at doing some Phoenix shit, like real Phoenix shit, a line that she never crossed before. Mm-hmm. Where she goes, I'm going to gently place our friends down and then I'm going to change your minds. Yeah. And then the narrator like explains like, don't you really read that? She was going to get rid of mutant hatred from the mind of everyone on the planet because she sees, I think that's frankly like growth for Jean. Like, that, mm-hmm. sort of, I mean, we're really in that moment right there. And this gets to become the story that Wheezy tells in in Jean Grey number one, but that's really some like so. What if the Batman just killed the Joker? Thing right there, right? Like mm-hmm. this this line that supposedly, like if you cross it, you kill both the character. You end up breaking the character and the story. And right the fundamental crap. Exactly. Yeah. Like right before she dies, she's like, "Okay, Krakow is about to fall. I have to mind wipe the world of this thing. I have to get rid of." from humanity, the impulse to see mutant kind as a threat that has to stop right now. And right before that happens, you remember something like less than a month of publication history or something is mutant first strike where Jean is on this mission. She sees the, the essentially proud boys of Orcus completely sincerely believing something 
that's com- that's that's wrong. That they also have been manipulated. Yes. How do you reach these people? Yeah, and like it doesn't. Gene at that point is definitely not willing to consider that. Well, I can just fix this right now, right? And here she's about to like launch the, the damn thing. point of the nuke, right? Like this is this is a kind of this is a phoenix moment from Gene. Yeah, and she is interrupted. But of of all things, the way she dies is 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 a mindfuck of it because on one level, we see this so clearly from Gene's point of view, both in this issue and in the Gene Gray book. But in the way that it happens, Moira is killing Gene to hurt Charles. So she doesn't even, from Moira's perspective, Jean doesn't get agents. matter. Yeah. Exactly. She's taking well, away she's something. She's also treating her as the main weapon, though. She's she she is Omega One, like she yeah. addresses a threat on her own terms. Yes. I found, yes. Yeah. But when Moira kills her, what does she say? She says, "Look yes. at me, Charles. Look at what I have done, and see what has happened to the one you love the most." Mm. that's not I'm killing Jean Grey because Jean Grey is a major th- I mean like of all of the people assembled of all of the people assembled there Jean is the threat more expensive yeah but at the same time Moira is settling something between her and Charles and that is an immensely textured way to take away for the time being even though of course we have this miniseries one of the the central figures of the X-Men. big guns. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that too, in a way, and I say this all the time, but like Scott and Jean are, are Xavier's favorites, but Hank is the most true child yeah. of his philosophy. Um, in a way it's more of an extension, like for, for more personal, it's about hurting Charles at the deepest possible level that she can. And I have my own, philosophical and religious beliefs about what she would be now that she's a some kind of sentinel but uh, from a practical level too they've done a very interesting thing with Krakoa in which they've established omega mutants and mutants in general as resources and assets right and we see throughout the Krakoan era this definition of mutants as assets but not really people in the same way that Abigail Brand is an asset, but she's not really a citizen of Krakoa. Yeah. Wizkid is an asset, but I wouldn't call them a citizen. Him? Him. We're going to say them because Krakoa. Wizkid is like them vibes. So Yeah, I I was confused. So I reread Sword today and, and specifically uses him. And I was surprised because right. I'd always read them. It, yeah, I, um, we're going to say them. Anyway. Yeah, then. But, you know, these these characters are are assets and, and same thing with Manifold, right? And by proxy gateway, because he's like a backup. Some of these mutants are just kind of assets. And I feel like Mora went after Krakoa's biggest asset, A, but also B, Charles's biggest emotional investment. Because Charles needs to prove to himself that he can make things right right the dark phoenix is where he starts to unravel it's where he can't fix something Mm. for the first time and he chafes at it 
I mean, this whole cosmic adventure with the, the Shi'ar is about preserving Jean because he's convinced he can fix her. And the idea that Mora goes specifically for Jean, who is the Omega that he fixed, that she doesn't try to kill Storm. I know, like, no one seems to, they account for Storm being off of Krakoa. But that's easy because she's Araku, right? Like, she's the regent of Araku. She's invested in Araku. They start a civil war, they're like, that's handled. They don't even consider Storm for emotional value. They don't consider any of the other X-Men. They go directly to Jean. And the confrontation. That's why X-Men... Red 14 is, is so good here. Yes, you know, it seems so incredible. So separate. Like when, when Beto comes in to the scene, he's just like, they killed Sam. Yep. They really just gave it such a strong moment with them. It's so like, devastating. Yeah. On a real level, just the, the amount of loss. And we haven't even, and they haven't even addressed the humans of it all. Right? Like they killed how many guests? How many people lost family members? And as far as they know, they're never going to get them back. All in that massacre. And it, and Mora just focuses on Jean. Hmm. That was, that was all she cared about until, until Rogue popped through that floor. Well, there was such a good scene though of Storm working out her shit with Professor X a few issues mm-hmm. ago and saying what had to be said to him about how he essentially weaponized her and told her that her life wasn't important unless she left her people in Africa and came with him. Like mm. it was such a, like that issue made me think that professor X might not make it out of this because I was like, well, professor X and storm of how I'm still not sure he's going to. Yeah. It's called full yeah. of X. Like what no. do you, I mean, like this is certainly professor X dies more than Jean gray. Oh, yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. One of my favorite moments in the gene death that like is just, I don't know it has to be foreshadowing is when she's on the astral plane talking with Firestar. Firestar incensed that Stasis is lying about who would be responsible for all these human deaths. And she go- and Jean goes, yes, lies are powerful. We'll need the truth to burn it all away. Mm. The, Phoenix, was- the Phoenix burns away lies, Emma Frost. Mm-hmm. And, and at the time, also, tragically, Hope is carrying her body. And Hope was the one that was burning away the infection from Sinister. Like I just, I find it very funny that a lot of the Phoenix imagery is is reflected through Hope and her powers in an augmentary way. Hope was a mutant messiah. This, I, mm, I, and she's I, holding her body. Hope, hope, hope fan from way back when. I hope theater for way back when, but I oh. love her now. Good. I yeah. listen. Messiah Complex was not great for time for me. Oh, I didn't read it, so there you go. <laughs> I'm you? just like he's in Kieran Gillen's comics, so I read the. <laughs> I love Second Coming. I love the Dwayne Jasinski. I'm so sorry, I can't pronounce your name. Cable series where it's Daddy Cable and Baby Hope until like, I love be, listen. I love it, and then I love Generation Hope that Kieran Gillen. Generation series. Hope is so fucking so good. good. So I'm so overlooked. happy to hear C Zero and the new Dark X Men series. Yes. I, I actually did not like giving Zero the 
the villain turn, to be honest. I'm okay with it, whatever, but I would have rathered him not be. I would have preferred him to be like an asshole who was the superhero versus like having gone full villain, but that's okay. Like now we get to see him in this new story, which will be very cool. God, that's how I'd been for Mora. Laura. Oh, yeah. So for me, my problem is more the bishop of it all than it is the capable hope of it all. Mm. Yes. But I can never enjoy the Mandalorian vibes of Cable and Hope because I'm always just like, there is an indigenous man committing genocide. It and was not a great choice. Being no. very flippant about it. And he's Aboriginal of all things. <laughs> yeah. The ultimate sin. Yeah. And he's, it's not that he's flippant about it because he was raised in an internment camp. The idea that he'd be removed from his culture is, makes sense. But it's the way that the narrative kind of treats it like a matter of course mm. that bothers me. I like that they've given him and Kate a rapport and marauders. The idea that he's upset that he wasn't there to prevent her death, even though she could be resurrected, was very nice. But boy, was all of Messiah Complex a rough time sure. to be an Aboriginal fan of X-Men. <laughs> Denny's camp seems to want to address this in, I, in I'm hoping in Children of the Vault. Um, I'm begging because the Children of the Vault is so rich for the idea yeah. of generational trauma in like micro in, in compressed time. I'm ready for it. I, I read a lot of the cable and bishop interactions as being a really deliberate attempt to deal with. Mm-hmm from Messiah complex to the cable series, how all of that can kind of move forward. Um, yeah. The only that- thing we're missing is really a flashback of, of Bishop discussing literally anything with gateway, any, any type of like reconciliation with what he did would be just nice. Yeah. They did a that lot of hand waving. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if you can hand wave, the con- the conscious choice that he made to say it doesn't matter if it's undone. Yeah. That's a rough line for an Aboriginal character to say. And they haven't addressed it, but I love what they've written so far. It, they're doing incredible with what they have. I don't, I have no complaints about what we have so far. Yeah, I think this is set up in such a strong way. However long, I'm assuming Fall of X is the better part of a of a year of publishing i'm not i'm not honestly sure but there's there's so much richness here that i'm going to have a great time reading books about my favorite era of x-men quite possibly collapsing feels compelled yeah it's a compelling compelling i've been grateful since hoxpox I've gotten to be around while it's been happening to read essentially mm. something that once it was created made me realize I had always wanted the X-Men to be. This has been such mm. a special four or five years and it's been meaningful to me. And obviously this wasn't something, anything anyone could have planned, but the fact that it happened like during the pandemic and during an extremely rough period politically and socially has been such a, uh, a balm, a comfort, 
and an opportunity to reimagine no less than what we want out of life. And I've been blown away that, and perhaps I shouldn't have been, but I should have trusted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That like they earned that if this is the way that the Krakoa era has to advance slash wrap itself up slash however else the, the possibilities might be that they thought so deeply and planned so carefully that so many of the turns that they made here would be earned, would feel like culminations of the ideas put forward from the start of, of the Krakoa era. And the only downside to it is that it's so expensive. I was on vacation and didn't go to a comic shop for pretty much all of August. Came back, oh, no. last, came back last week. I had read, I had read the the gala, the Iron Man issue, and that was it, and the Iceman issue, and that was it. And so I come back and like now have, except for that, all of Fall of X, starting with X Men twenty five. Mine was sixty dollars. Yeah, it was sixty dollars. That was a lot of. Money. Oh my god! Mm. <laughs> I don't regret it. I don't. I. It's gonna. It's. This is a rough budget. For 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 if this is what every month is like. Well, I, I'm going to have to wrap really soon, but I also have a couple things I need to. Well, I have a couple things I need people to just be like, yay or nay on is the thing before okay. we go. So okay. re, right, real, really quick. How do we even do this really quick? Because it's going to kill me. How do folks feel about Curse? I love her. I love her. I would die for her. That's I have it. not read because I am generally avoiding stories where... There's eco-terrorist stuff happening. I've not read much of their other appearances in X-Men Green, but I am I I'm excited to see what happens with Curse in in Realm of X, but I'm also like I know I missed a lot. So Curse, if I'm not mistaken, is created during the Krakoa era. I think yes, the first time we see her is Barauders, right? Mm. Yeah. This might turn out to be the character created for this era who ends up the most Hitting important, the right? Pride. Yeah. I, I, I love her. I love her personality. I love the defiance. And I yeah. love that she feels distinctly Krakoan. And like, she also, feels- I like seeing a teenage X-Man, a teenage, a, lack of a better term in X-Men. She's not even a teenager. She's like a tween. Like, she, I think yeah. she's probably like 12, maybe. I like that she's a little shit. No, mm-hmm. I love her. Yes. Like, yeah, that yes. like at, at this era is at this at this age especially. Like, she's a little shit. At the same time, Charles Xavier is calling her evil. You can't trust that. No, right. Like, seriously, Charles, that's a child. Yeah, stop. stop. And, and and I find it interesting too that she's all she feels very Tommy, in the sense mm. of like a mutant that he wrote off. Mm. And I feel like she's gonna end up becoming incredibly important. In, in a karmic yeah. reversal of his fate, I just feel that I feel that her powers and also her positioning and her awareness of what's going on when she's being dragged through the gate during the Hellfire Gala is going to position her in a way that she's going to be just very important. Can I? She's going matter. Can I just say, just because of her character design? Yep. 
Is she the X Men's Bart Simpson? Because for a little head. She's maybe. She's if you mix the no. She's if you mix of Lisa with the irreverence of Bart with the violence of Maggie. She's all three of the Simpson children merged together. She's become the ultimate Simpson. You're welcome. (laughs) That's all I had to. That's all I had to. That was a good riff. No. She's, I'm just saying, like, when she's going through the gate, it sounds like she wants to kill Charles Xavier. She definitely wants no, to yeah. kill Charles Xavier. She does. <laughs> no, it's amazing. Yeah. She was in the pit. Yeah. She's, and who has better reason? Who has a better or reason? Angry child. I love her. Okay, good. I'm glad we're on the team here. Folks, thoughts about Emma Frost and Tony Stark. Editor Ilana jumping in. Remember, we recorded this before the wedding proposal issue happened. Love it. Yeah, I'm pro. I, I've I'm pro. I'm buying Iron Man and I'm buying Iron Man and floppies for the first time in a long but, time. But not resenting it even a little. I'm enjoying. Oh no, here's okay. the thing. I love when the form matches the function. And Emma Frost has, if nothing else, always used her sexual being as a tool. And the idea that now they're both fully aware that this alliance is a, is a function of power. And they're both in on it makes it kind of hot. Someone on the Discord, work- someone on the Discord who I desperately wish was me, but it wasn't, said perfectly that the portmanteau when they get married has to be white man. <laughs> I love that so much. It was so perfect. I no, wish no, I came no, up no. with that. That's good. That's good. I, yeah. just, I, I just wish that the comic would more acknowledge that she also was in a relationship with like Cyclops. And because I think that they had such wonderful moments together as well. I've um, never read Tony Stark as monogamous anyway. Yeah. That's I not mean, when you're that rich. Yeah. Level. Not going to happen. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I don't even know if they're like, and I say this as the most poly person known to man. I don't even know if Emma and Tony are fucking. On yeah, a I, level. that was part of it. I've always we, seen them. We, yeah, the marriage is a meeting of minds. I've never read it as like a romantic thing. I think that they love each other in a an alliance sense and in a friendship way. I don't think that Emma Frost would have called him to account for Genosha if she didn't care. They're... Jerry's writing, some, Jerry's writing some great banter between, yeah. between these characters that like she knows this trauma and she's just kind of like, yeah, we both have trauma. We need to move through it. And like <laughs> at the same time, I feel like when I read these scenes of them together, particularly when they like start erupting at one another, like yeah. at one point in the in the most recent Iron Man issue. Tony is having a panic attack and he's just basically like, you, you need to stop treating me like I'm one of them. You know, like Orcus. He's yeah, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not, not an enemy. I'm not, I, like, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not your enemy. I'm in this subway tunnel with you. That needs, like, right. it, when the, he writes those moments like that, and like, th- these are the kind of conversation, these, these are the kind of exchanges that like can easily end with them getting physical with one another. Like, yeah. yeah. And and I like the fact that they're both too, and this is meta and pulling back very distantly, but they're both too 
semi-neglected children of influential rich men who happen to be white Mm -hmm. and who happen to be capitalists. And they seem to just meet at that point and move past it. Emma doesn't feel the need to dig into his past. Tony doesn't seem to feel the need to dig into hers. They both understand who they are, where they came from. And they're like, all right, let's move past it. And I love that for them because that feels very Emma. Where Emma will find a point of like alliance. Same thing with Kingpin and be like, all right, we agree on this, this little node and we need to move on from there. Where does this logically progress? I love that for her. I love that she's allowed to be like a ruthless businesswoman without being depicted as heartless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. It is good. She, uh, she's a pragmatist. Then, yes, and we love her. Speak and now Kamala Khan, her coming oh. out soon, her return. I will say that the pencils on it in the gala issue were Gorgeous. really rough. I thought they were I thought she looked like an old woman. Uh, and in fairness. I, yeah. There were some early accident issues where I thought Storm looked haggard. But I'm gonna I'm gonna let that go. But I do think like I think it's cool that they are making her be the mutant that we always knew she was supposed to be, clearly mm. supposed to be. And I think having her be mutant and inhuman is that's cool too. Just like layer it on. People have many identities, bring it. I appreciated like the way Emma interacted with her. It was like mutant tech B is the reason you are alive right now to, to disappoint me. <laughs> Beautiful. Like, I feel like it's completely understandable that Kamala is reluctant to immediately come out, especially given everything she's just been through and especially given everything her family has had to deal with. But she needs to. So I feel like the comic got right where I wanted it to, which is like, this is hard. This isn't easy, but you do need to do it, which is like what I wanted. That's what I wanted it to go to. And I also, I don't know. What do folks think about Kamala's return? I like that they used a more high profile character to address the idea of like whether or not you identify as a mutant or you want to participate in mutant culture, you are one. Yes. She's indelibly tied to this struggle, whether she wants to be or not. But I also like that it was her choice. That she said mm-hmm. that she says in I think it's X-Men twenty five that even if I wasn't a mutant, I would be here with you. Yes, yeah. that was so beautiful too. There was also a great line about like bodily autonomy. Like we believe in bodily autonomy. Oh, it's from Charles Xavier. Bodily autonomy. Do we Charles? Do we Charles? Yeah. I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. But But I like that that's aspirationally something that is said. Charles, yeah, Charles is all about upholding standards that he doesn't necessarily meet. I think that he wants Craig Cohen to interact. Yeah. Wait, what was this if I miss? <laughs> okay. If you're going to compare them, Magneto and Charles, I feel like that Eric or Max has a better record of meeting his own standards mm-hmm. than Charles does, express- yeah. expression-wise. Because Charles oh, sure. says a lot of things. Sure. Red Triangle Defense meme. <laughs> Look at them bringing back resist as a useful word because I... I feel like oh, 2016 really, made it irrelevant. Not really desensitized. I think it's a powerful concept. And I, it's unfortunate that people, I, I think, get kind of bored of the notion of using that term. So I'm like, yeah, bring it back. And 
I what it's a fun combination of typography and layout. I don't know if lots of thought and it's a red comment it even exists but i believe it what do you folks think about the red triangle psychic defense with the word i hope it spreads yeah i I would like to see telepaths be able to do less in Mm. the marvel universe i i know that that's a controversial take but i personally feel that and as much as i love emma frost and boy do i love emma frost i think that emma and monet and especially Jean and Rachel and Betsy by proxy have gotten a lot of away with a lot of things that are human rights violations. So I would love to see the red triangle defense spread through the people that didn't necessarily pick it up at the time of the gates, but mm-hmm. mentally took it in. I would love to see a later period where a telepath is trying to compel a large group of people and it's not working. That's all I have to say on that. I've had such a great time. This has been such a fun conversation. Yeah, this has been, this has been really fun, you guys. Thank you for joining me in this. And thanks to our listeners for listening. Ketan, where can our listeners keep up with your amazing work and insights? Oh, no. Nowhere now because Twitter is <laughs> Twitter. As I don't exist anywhere else. No, that's not true. I'm on Tumblr as all perspicacity because I don't shake anything up. And that's it. We'll link to it. <laughs> we'll link to it in the notes. We'll link and to it. Fine. And Spencer, in addition to everybody buying Waller versus Wildstorm in September, where else can people keep up? Which, like, they should go and do at their local comic book store. Make sure they have Please an do. issue for you. Go buy it. I have a newsletter called Forever Wars, which is journalism about ongoing crimes of the state, both those related uh, to 9-11 and not. That's it, foreverwars.ghost.io. I'm on Instagram and Blue Sky as Attackerman. And in addition to Waller versus Wildstorm, you can also buy my book, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump in bookstores everywhere. And I'm on Twitter. Yes. Thank you. Please, folks, do yourself a favor. And I'm on Twitter still, but less than I was. Good for me. E-L-A-N-A <laughs> underscore Brooklyn. And I'm on Blue Sky a lot more, which is with my last name. L-E-V-I-N. Levin. And as we like to say, keep it geeky. <laughs>